All right, good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to our uh, service. Uh, this morning's July already, uh, so happy uh, July uh, to you. This year has been going by uh, really quite uh, quickly. Uh, so we are continuing on on our sermon series uh, in the book of Romans uh, today, and we are on part two. So if you're joining us for the very first time, uh, you've come in for quite a passage, uh, quite a heavy-hitting a good passage, I would say, and I do pray that it will give us hope and encouragement today as we make our way uh, th through it. Uh, there's a man named John, uh, Jack uh, Swaggered, and he was told in uh, the space module to stir up the oxygen tanks. And as he was called to do so, 95 seconds later, he heard a loud bang, and this coined the famous phrase, Houston, we have a problem. Uh, it was an Apollo 13 mission to land on the moon in 1970 uh, that uh, re really made the uh, famous movie uh, Apollo 13 that many of us have watched. Uh, Bill Paxton, Tom Hanks, and of course, Kevin Bacon, uh, the guy who stirred up uh, the oxygen tanks. And in fact, actually, the, the, the actual quote of it wasn't Houston, we have a problem. But what he actually first said was, Houston, we've had a problem here, but I digress. That doesn't really matter uh, for those are accurate in terms of what people said. But those words have echoed uh, from 1970 all the way to now, 50 years later, that uh, here we see in our world today that maybe it's not Houston we have a problem, but you look to the world and you say we do have a problem, that there's many issues we have going on here. And the Apostle Paul, uh, which wrote and penned, uh, the uh, letter to the Romans, uh, looked around in the Greco-Roman world and he saw a problem there. He saw a big problem. And maybe for us today, we're looking around the world and we're seeing lots and lots of problems. Uh, to name a few, COVID-19, we see racism, injustice, oppression, murder, theft, injustice all around the world. And that's just to name a few that we look in the world and we say that there is a problem. And, and today, uh, what we're going to get a glimpse of here, as, we, uh, as Aaron just beautifully read there in, in, in Romans um, chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, that we're going to get a diagnosis of our human condition. That's what this is. It's a diagnosis of our human condition, of the human heart, not from the human perspective, but from God's perspective, from a perspective that he is seeing the world in. So not from man's perspective, like take that into heart, that it's from God's perspective. And I'm warning you already that as you already heard the passage read that it's going to get uh, heavy. And this letter to the Romans, we're calling the, uh, the series, the letter to Romans, the power of the gospel. And last week we learned about how the gospel changes everything. It changes our identity. It changes our activity. It gives us strength and power to, to live and gives us a reason and a purpose to live in the, the everyday. We also learned that God is perfectly righteous, that uh, he is perfectly righteous, that he does everything that's right and everything that's just and for those of us uh, that understand the good news, uh, the gospel, that God has come into the world and he is the Messiah. He is the chosen one. He is the one you've been looking for, the one that's come to save us. And through Jesus, uh, God came in the, in the person of Jesus and he died on the cross, defeated death and rose again. And when we believe in Jesus, we are also given this righteousness of God. We're given this right standing before God. And just as you think about that, you would think that Paul would continue on with this good news, right? Like, yeah, Paul, like, you know, in, in this world with all these issues, and all these problems, give me the good news, give me the good stuff. But we have a hold on here. He doesn't go into the good stuff. He talks about some really bad stuff. And that's because we can't know how good the good news is without knowing how bad the bad news is. We won't understand the good news until we understand why we need a savior. 
why we need saving altogether. And Romans 118 to 320 is a whole lot of bad news. So if you're joining us for the first time here in our church today uh, and you're looking for some good news, well, it will get really good as we go through the book of Romans. Uh, that's why we love book studies. You can't dodge passages, but it goes through certain themes. But it's going to be a lot of bad news for the next couple Sundays. And you're like, oh man, Doug, you're such a bummer. Well, that's the text that we're going through and we're, it's needed for us to understand how good uh, the good news is because in order to fix the problem, I need to identify the, the, the foundation of it, the source of it, the core of our issue as humans. And we always need to read scripture in context here. Like we need to understand the framework. You don't, uh, after all, when you receive a letter in the mail, if you still receive mail or, or an email, you never just read the beginning and then leave the rest of it. No, you read the whole letter through. So I do challenge you to read through the book of Romans on yourself if you haven't done so already, because you need to understand it in, in context. Can you imagine if you got, uh, got a card and then you open the card and it says, uh, and it says, Hey old man. And that's all it says. And you're like, well, how should I read this? Am I supposed to be offended by this? Like what, you know, what is this? And then afterwards it says, happy birthday from you know, okay, it was a joke, you know, like it was like kind of a joke. There's a context to that comment. And I think the same way for us, as you read Romans and you read the letters, we need to understand the context of what Paul is speaking on here in the greater aspect. So last week was about the gospel. That's how we started off chapter one. And there's a section we talk about today. And then in chapter two, verse one, he goes on saying, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. So here, Paul isn't condemning a certain group of people. He's actually saying all of humanity is broken that no one has an excuse, no Jewish person, no Gentile, no one in all of creation has an excuse because all of us have broken, have gone away from the way that God has created us to be. So Paul's not writing to condemn a specific group. Paul is writing to say we have a problem as, as humanity. And that's, uh, that need to keep that in mind as we go into verses 26 and 27 uh, later on. So the big idea for us this morning is, is, is this, that we all have a worship problem. That is really the issue that is going on here in chapter uh, verses 18 to 32, that we all have a worship problem. That's the groundwork that Paul is laying on here. Uh, and what's the problem here? Well, I'm going to start off by talking about uh, God's wrath. Uh, and then we're going to go into talking about how we have all rejected and exchanged God for something else. All, all of us, uh, all humanity has done that. And then go on to say, God gave us over to what it is that we want. So whatever we have exchanged God for, he has given that to us. He's like, if you want that, then you're going to get uh, what you want. So uh, let's get into the text here. Uh, Romans uh, 1, 18 uh, starts like this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So what we see here right from the get-go is that there's such, thing, such a thing as the wrath of God. And Many people don't like talking about the wrath of God because we like talking about the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, whatever it is of God, the good things of God. But again, we can't understand the good things without the bad things. We can't understand how good the good news is without understanding how bad the bad news is. But yet, so there's some of us that don't talk about it at all. And there's some of us that rejoice in it too much. All right, we talk about it too much. Like we talk about it, that's all we're known for, the wrath of God, and that's all God is. And there's two ends of the spectrum. But what we need to understand here this morning is that there is such a thing as the wrath of God. And the wrath of God isn't man's wrath. It isn't God throwing a fit. It isn't God just getting angry. There's a righteousness and a love to it. And Paul switches from the gospel to talking about wrath because we need to understand what we've been saved 
to and what we've been saved from. That's what Paul is laying on the groundwork uh, for. That God's wrath, it, it's not a fit again. It's, it's God being righteous and holy. And it's his response to sin and evil in the world. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching a, I was going through a, 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 a kind of binge watching. Um, not a good thing. I don't recommend it. Netflix, uh, spending way too much time in it. For those of you that understand, you know what I'm talking about. And I was watching a true crime drama about, a, uh, about cases in the United States. And it's actually about serial rapists. So it's quite dark. I had, it was trying to find, I had to watch him. Like I had to find out if they ever caught the guy. I need to find out if there was ever justice done. Now they did catch the guy. Now, would it be loving and righteous if the policeman who caught the guy was said, you know what, you know what, you, you, you know what, you can go, you can do whatever you want. You can go off and, and do whatever you want. No, we wouldn't say that. That's not loving and, uh, and, and righteousness. Now at the same time, when that person is before the judge, we wouldn't expect the judge, the judge wouldn't say something, ah, oh, you know what, you've done all these things, but you know what, you can go. It's, it's okay. No, we, we want to say there's righteousness and there's justice and there's love. Uh, the loving thing to do isn't actually to let them keep, uh, let them go off, but they, they need to understand uh, their crime and the weight of what they've done. Now, we go back into the, our context and uh, understanding of our setting. Like, we all have a problem as well, we, but we don't have a problem saying other people have problems. Like, we don't have a problem calling out other people's sin and their wrongdoing. We don't have a problem saying other people deserve God's wrath. But here, Paul's turning it around and saying, like, it's not just everyone else. It's actually, it's actually everyone, and everyone means we're included in that. Uh, and, and he's calling us out on our sin, that we love sin too much. Like we enjoy it a little bit too much. We deny ourselves that we are deserving of, of God's wrath. And this leads to a, a suppressing of the truth here uh, by their wickedness. Because of this, we don't want to talk about ourselves. We suppress the truth of the gospel of us realizing our brokenness and we suppress it just like how you know, you've gone swimming before, you have a pool noodle or you have an inflatable ball and you try to press it down into the water. Well, that's kind of the understanding of this word. You try to suppress it, but sooner or later, the truth comes out uh, because that's God's truth. That's his gospel. That's how it is, whether it's in this world or in the next. So he goes on in verse 19 here. Uh, Since what, we, uh, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and the divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. There's a lot here, but what I'm going to say here is that we're hardwired to know God. We're hardwired to know God and that God has made himself known, that he's not a God that's going around and playing hide and seek to be like, come and find me. And like, no, like God has made himself help known uh, to us and that we're hardwired to actually look for God because whether you call yourself a believer or not, not a believer this morning, you're made in the image of God and he's left that hardwired inside of you to look out for God. But the question is, are we looking out for him? Are we denying him? Uh, are, are we paying attention to what he's saying in nature, in all of creation, as you look out into uh, the, the heavens? Uh, that could be a sermon of itself, but I'm going to continue on to some really uh, meteor stuff coming up. So for although they knew God, they, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, as Paul is going on his argument here, this is really important for us to understand. And the first question we have to ask here, he says this, like, for although they knew God, well, who is they here? 
like who 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 is Paul referring to as they and scholars say this and I think in the context we understand this who Paul is talking about is the Gentiles here that it's they uh, they didn't know God they didn't glorify God they didn't give thanks to God so Gentiles anyone that's non-Jewish that that's who he's speaking to uh, right now but he's not going to let the Jewish people off uh, because he's going to get to them later uh, because the whole book of Romans is saying that God is redeeming all of humanity Jews and Gentiles together but he's saying here specifically they Gentiles and that's most of us here, I would think, uh, even though we, they knew God, uh, they never glorified him, nor they thanked him. This word for glory, uh, glorify means to give weight. So they never gave weight to what God said. I uh, never gave weight to his words, never gave weight to the presence and the person of God, nor did they thank God. And this helps us this morning to understand if we have, if we all have a worship problem, then we understand here how Paul has defined what worship is. Worship is giving weight to God, giving weight to what he says over our lives, giving weight to the person that he is, and also giving thanks to God. That's how our understanding of what uh, worship is. Worship is giving weight and thanks to God. And we see here that he starts the argument saying it starts with a worship problem. You would think he goes talking about all the other things later on that is an ethical problem, is a cultural problem, it's, a, uh, it's a, our understanding, it's our heart problem. No, he's saying it's, it's a worship problem. It's what we first put first and foremost in our lives, what we worship first that uh, dictates the rest of our lives. And because it starts with the worship problem, he goes on saying we exchange this, we exchange God who should be at the forefront, should be at the top of our, our lives. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for other things. So imagine this, God gave you a gift, a big, a great gift and you open it. And instead of accepting it, for what it is, you go back to the store and you exchange it. Uh, you exchange it for a PS4, you exchange it for your job, you exchange it for a spouse, uh, you exchange it for a relationship. Uh, that's the understanding here, that God has given us a good gift. God has given us the gospel, yet we exchanged it. Uh, you exchange it for the glory uh, of something else. So we had the immortal God, the one that spoke and everything came into being, we exchanged that for something else that pales in comparison to who this God is. And the question we should be asking right now, and which most people, when they read this passage, passage they would say, well, why is God just so angry? Well, I have a problem with the wrath of God. Why is God so upset and so angry? And Paul doesn't uh, let us off that easily. Instead of starting off by answering, why is God so angry? He starts off by asking and, and, and asking us, why have you rejected God? That's, the, that's his first point. It's not, why is God so angry? Because God is good. God is just. God is merciful. God is love. I, the question is actually, why have you rejected God? That's how Paul frames this argument and frames uh, this, our understanding that we have a worship problem. So you might be thinking right now, well, well, what did we exchange? What have we given up? Another way of looking at this question, perhaps, is, well, what is it that you love more than God? Now, what have you placed above God? And our whole lives are meant to be in response and worship, right? Like giving weight and thanks to who God is. But what is it that we love more than God? As James K. Smith puts it uh, in his book, We Are What We Love. Well, we are what we love. Uh, we are what we worship. We are what we put first and foremost uh, in our lives. So we might say things like this in our lives, that we know God is good. We know God is just. We know, God, you're important, and everything you have for me is good and, and perfect. But I, I choose my family first. 
but I, I choose my career first, but I, I put this relationship first uh, before you. I put money and fame before you. I put my own desires and my own wants before you. Or as we see later on, we put my own sexual self-expression before you. So he starts off by saying, hey, you've exchanged whatever it is for, uh, for uh, instead of having God, you exchanged God for something else. And this leads to us understanding God's wrath and leads to us living in God's wrath and, and in his righteousness. And what do you think God's judgment looks like? Have you ever thought about that question? Like, what do you think God's judgment looks like? And often maybe it's depicted in culture and in movies that it looks like, uh, you know, like God sitting on a cloud and smiting us, right? Like with, um, <laughs> with lightning bolts. Well, I'll just say, I don't think that's biblical per se. Like, you know, I don't think God's judgment, it's not lightning bolts. It's not a tsunami or an earthquake. God's judgment is actually giving us over to our own desires. Hear that. God's judgment, God's wrath in this context is actually giving us over to our own desires because human humanity, we exchange the glory of God for other things. Like later on in this text, three times the text says God gave them over because we exchanged, because we didn't worship God, because we have a worship problem. God gave them over, gave us over for those that choose other things over to whatever it is that we desire. And this meaning and word for exchange, uh, giving up, giving over means how God has loosened his grip. Uh, but some, uh, uh, some th theologians and scholars say that it's actually more than just loosening the grip, that God has actually loosened the grip of the boat and also pushed it towards the direction that the boat is wanting to go. Uh, that's our understanding of this, that God gave them over. And uh, Douglas Moo in his great commentary in Romans says, God does not simply let the boat go. He gives it a push downstream. Like a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment his crime has earned, God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. So the judgment, and when we know we're living God's wrath, is that when we're allowed to sin, that we're living in our own sin, that is us sitting in God's wrath. That is God's judgment. And I, I, I hear the cries, I hear in my own heart that, well, doesn't this sound unfair again? You know, doesn't this sound unfair? Why would God do such a thing? But what we need to wrestle with is that we can't have it both ways. We can't have the choice and not have the consequences. We can't have it both ways. We can't have the choice and not have the consequences. We, we, we choose to live in opposition of God. And because we choose something other than God, God gave us over to our choices. He's saying, well, isn't that what you want anyways? But yet we victimize God and saying, well, why would you let me do that? When we're the ones saying, well, we want to do this. So then we get angry, that God gets angry, but it was us who chose something else rather than him. Do you follow this? Do you follow what, 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 what Paul is really saying here? So God gave people over to what they want. And the question is for us, should we be upset that we got what we wanted? Uh, but we are upset by, by this. And there's a reason why, because there's a problem. We know that this isn't the way that the world is supposed to be. And there's some that say the most wrathful thing that God can do with a sinful person is to give them over to what they want. And C.S. Lewis affirms this. He says that when you choose sin, the sin is eventually what you become. That when you choose sin, when you choose whatever it is that's not God, that's eventually what you are made up of. That is what you eventually become. And it's with that understanding and context that we go into Romans 24 onwards. Therefore, 
right? Because we have exchanged, because we've chosen something else other than God, because you wanted something else other than God already, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So God gave them first over to sexual impurity. And there's a biblical understanding of what purity is. And this word for impurity here is corruption. So it's actually, we can now translate it as desires of their hearts to sexual corruption of the way that of how it was not designed to be. So our biblical understanding of sex is within the covenantal relationship of marriage. And we build our Christian ethics, a marriage ethics, not just on one passage or on two passages, but we build a Christian marriage ethics on at least 47 passages in scripture of saying how is between a man and a woman and how God has ordained it to be. That's how we understand a marriage to be and since marriage is, is since marriage is between a man and a woman uh, and any sexual hear this any sexual activity outside of that marriage setting is sexual impurity anything it, 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 it's whether it's, it's, it's sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend it's whether it's looking at pornography whether it's child molestation anything outside of that marriage setting it's counted as sexual impurity and God has designed sex for a multidimensional purpose. Uh, we know this in, in scripture and, and we see this in real life. That's for reproduction. It's for knowing and, and intimacy. Like within the sexual uh, setting, there's nothing more vulnerable and tr trusting than in the act of sex. Uh, that's in that setting that you're, you're meant to know, know each other. So therefore, that's why it's reserved for the marriage settings. Because after those vows, we know in that covenant of God that we know we can trust one another. That's why it's reserved within that setting. We also know, so it's reproduction, it's for intimacy, it's for companionship, and, and of course, pleasure. It's, it's all those things. And yet, our culture has defined sex purely for mostly pleasure, really. Like, that's our understanding of what sex is, but God created it for, for something more. I wish I can go on uh, more about this topic. Uh, this is a sermon, again, a whole series uh, of its own, but I want to make sure we cover uh, the text into other sets of, of, of passages. Uh, so in verse 26, it goes on. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. This word for shameful means a strong desire. It's actually the same word for passion uh, that we get. Uh, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for natural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, so this is one of the biggest, hardest hitting uh, parts of this passage, this text here. Maybe even in, that it hits upon a nerve in our culture, in our society as often talked about um, uh, under scrutiny. But I want to, before I even get into it, I want to ask you this question. Why do these verses cause us so much trouble? I think that's actually the first question we need to ask. Why do these verses cause so much trouble for us? Cause so much trouble for our understanding and our culture in our day and age. And one of my speculations, one of my ways of understanding is that in our culture, in our day and age, expressing we see that expressing my sexual desire is the highest point of human existence. That the end of our goal, like the goal, the purpose of our life is our sexual identity. Like that, that is the purpose and the sole reason of our being that like expressing my sexual desire is the highest point of human existence. I, I was listening to quite a few podcasts this week and 
um, both, both, both from um, affirming and also uh, both from conservative and, and liberal sides of it. And in interviewing uh, people that are, have a same-sex attraction or uh, um, uh, and, and struggling with other aspects uh, of, of, of the spectrum, uh, we see what I often hear is this, like they'll ask, hey, uh, can you introduce yourself to our podcast listeners? And one of the first things that you hear is a trend that they would say, I've always struggled with this. Uh, they would say, for example, the one I heard was like, well, I'll start off with saying, I've always struggled with gender dysphoria. And so it's very interesting that when you ask someone who you are, that is the first thing that they answer. Uh, that is the first part of their identity in the, per se, like that is who they are. And I think that's actually one of the biggest lies, I would say, that Satan has placed upon us. Not just those with same-sex marriages, but those same-sex uh, struggles, but those of us uh, all together has placed someone else other than God. That one of the biggest lies of our time is that the measurement of flourishing is our sexual self-expression. Like that's not the measurement of our flourishing. That's not the measurement of what it means to be human. That's not all that matters in this, uh, in this world because human worth, as God defines it, is way more than that. It's not just our sexual identity. It's not just who we're attracted to. Uh, you, we need to hear this. We need to understand that, that being human is so much more than that. And in 8067, uh, sexual immorality, uh, which this letter was written in, that's the context it was written in, sexual immorality was rampant. And Paul is not address, uh, addressing here the desire as so much as he's addressing the act. That's important as well. He's not so much addressing the, the, the desire, but he's addressing out the act because there's other kinds of sexual brokenness. Uh, there are other examples of us rejecting God's biblical design of marriage as what we said in, in, uh, in the last point there. Uh, God, we, of us rejecting biblical design of marriage and relationship, uh, polygamy, pornography, prostitution, sex outside of marriage. Like those are all breaking uh, the intention uh, of, of, of God's creation and how God intended marriage uh, and relationship to be like. And I believe one of the worst things we can do as a Christian is to tell someone that that's not your desire, that you don't have the desires, you don't have these feelings, you don't have these wants, to, to deny them and say that those desires aren't real. I actually think right here that Paul says those desires are very real. Uh, those desires are actually real, like not to deny someone of that, like those desires and those wants and, and what they are feeling in their hearts are very real, but it's not to leave it there because at the same time, just because we have a desire doesn't mean it's aligned with what God says. It's aligned with God's will. So I find myself asking this, like, so why does Paul specifically single out same sex interactions here? Why, why does he do this? And, and, Hear this, it's not because it's the most sinful. It's not because it's the most broken. It's not because it's, it's the thing that we need to scrutinize and we need to, you know, uh, we need to go off and change people for. Like, there's no changing here. Only God heals. Only God speaks. But what Paul is saying here is that this is an example, especially in their day and age, an example of people rejecting God's biblical design. And people reading this letter in the context would have understood this, that this was going on. And he, and he is saying, this is not what God has created it to be. You need an example of people rejecting God's biblical design. This is an example of me giving it in the context of when this letter was written. And also, I think it's written, it speaks loudly into our time right now. And a large part of the conversation here hinges on the word natural, right? You've heard that before? What this word natural means? This word for natural isn't 
the understanding of, of the Greek, understanding the history of that word and the context isn't what's natural to me. Uh, the meaning of the word isn't what's, what's natural in terms of what we see in other people. The word natural uh, simply means how God originally designed it to be. That's what the word natural means, how God has designed it to be, whether it's in the spiritual sense or whether it's in the physical sense. That's how God has designed it uh, to be. And actually, if you look across the board in scholarly, scholarly papers between conservative uh, and, and liberal uh, scholars alike, no one really disagrees on that. They actually just disagree on what we should do about it. That, that's actually where the disagreement is. They, on the languages and stuff like, like that, like there's no disagreement upon it. And I know we're striking a really sensitive nerve here because this passage here, I'm not sure if you know this, this passage is one of six passages that people use to either affirm or deny same-sex attraction. There's only six passages in all of scripture to talk about same-sex attraction that talk about uh, this act. And this is one of them. There's Genesis 19, there's two in Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13. There's one in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. There's 1 Timothy 1 to 10 as well. And then of course our passage here in Romans uh, chapter 1, 26 to 27. And, and people that have been on the negative side of these passages have called these the clobber passages that Christians have used this to clobber on people with same-sex attractions, or Christians have used this to load the six bullets of a gun to attack Christians. And we need to understand this here of what exactly Paul is highlighting. And what is Paul highlighting here exactly? And I agree that the word homosexual and homosexuality is actually not found in scripture at all, not in the Greek, not in the Aramaic, and not in the Hebrew sense. That word is actually never found. And that's where people kind of point to saying, well, God never talks about it and is never really brought up because of the word. And people say within the setting of this passage here that Paul, what Paul is really talking about is pederasty, which is uh, men having sex with younger boys. That's what Paul is condemning here. But that's not the word that Paul uses because in, 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 there's a Greek word for that. It's a Greek word, uh, pederastia, which is exactly the word that we got from, the lover of young boys. That's what the word is. But he doesn't use the word in those passages, but he uses the word arsenoikoites, which is broken of two words, meaning, first one, arson, meaning men, and the second one, meaning to bed. So what Paul is saying in all the passages is saying that in any context between a man any male and male, it doesn't matter if it's a young man, an old man, it doesn't mean it's gentle, it doesn't mean it's abusive, it doesn't really matter, it's the act of it that Paul is saying is not aligned. And here's the thing, why I'm going on and on about this is, is this, that we can argue until the cows come home, but it doesn't do any good if there isn't love, if there isn't understanding, if it isn't a, a groundwork of us sharing what the gospel is about because the biggest point isn't arguing this is actually arguing for and understanding what has God designed marriage to be like and anything outside of that setting is not what God has designed marriage to be like I, I haven't yet read of an article really in the beginning of anyone refuting how God created man in the beginning and woman in the beginning and how God has designed that to be I haven't yet read an article that has refuted that part uh, so I think that's our understanding of how we come into this text here. Like, so God gave them over to this, whatever it is that you desire, whatever it is that you want, whatever it is that's outside of God, 
and his design, God gave them over to this. But I want to say this, that what does it mean for you to love? That's really the big question here. Not to argue the points of the Greek, of the language. What does it mean for you to love? What does it mean for you to listen? For you to listen to the pain, to the hurt, to the rejection. And if you're a leader here this morning and you're working in ministry, you need to hear this, that we need to teach and lay the groundwork for biblical sexuality. And we can argue, again, all these points, but I keep coming back to the point in the beginning, well, how did God create the world to be? Not the way that we see nature now, but how did God create things to be? Because what things were in the garden, that is perfection. Everything outside of that isn't. So what did God create things to be like in Eden? And that's where we start from. We don't work our way back. We work from away from the beginning to where we are now. If you're struggling with same-sex attraction, I want to say this to you, that Jesus loves you that Jesus cares for you, that Jesus came into the world not to condemn, but to save, that Jesus has embraced all of humanity. He loves you for who you are. He knows you for who you are. He knows your struggles. He knows everything about you and that Jesus loves you more than you know. And it grieves me when the church has gone otherwise and said other things, when the church has not welcomed you into God's arms, because that's, it, that's far, it couldn't be farther from the truth. God loves you for who you are. And you call yourself a Christian today, and you've had yourself some conversations like this. Know this, that you're no different than anyone else. How dare you judge someone else? Because you are no better. That's what Paul is saying here. How dare you judge someone else for their sins when you are not any better than what, 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 than what Paul is writing about here? That we haven't lived up to that perfection than you. So we have to come alongside as people, as human beings, because as, as we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. There's this table and a seat for everyone in the kingdom that chooses to accept God for who he is. And here, especially in this, that God is saying, that Paul is saying here that he's, he, he's, he's saying the act is not good. And that's why the word homosexual is not very good translation of the word because he's denying the act, but not so much of the person. That you have these struggles. And he goes on saying that like in, in verse 28 here, furthermore, just as in verse 28 here, sorry, in verse 28, he says this, furthermore, just as they didn't, did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a deprived mind. That's what they did. He gave them over to this warped kind of thinking. And that's how we kind of see humanity being today. So therefore, they, I mean Gentiles, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of, of doing evil. They dis disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they do not continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So as I end here, the question for us is this, that as we read all of this, especially the last point, this is not difficult to understand, but it's really difficult to live. It's also difficult to understand, it's so difficult to live. And the question for you is like, well, maybe you're not, sex, you're not struggling with sexual impurity. Maybe you're not struggling with same-sex attraction. But these last 21 things, how are you doing in them? This passage actually isn't about same-sex attraction at all. 
That's only one of the points. The thing is, we have a worship problem. That we all have a worship problem. How are you in terms of wickedness? How are you in terms of your greed? Are you envying your neighbor? Are you envying the car they drive, the house they live in? You're envying the spouse that they have, the lives that they have? Are you gossiping, slandering, talking back, uh, talking bad of, uh, of your friends and your family? Uh, are you arrogant and are you boastful? Like, how are you doing in these areas? Because if you look at this passage, the they here, we are they. We are the people that, they, that this passage is talking about. So I know I'm way over time and we're going over here. But it's really important for us to understand in two applications that what have you exchanged for, for instead of God? That's a reflection point this week. Secondly, don't worry about other people's brokenness. What about your own? How can you come before God in all of that?